I was home in my kitchen washing dishes in 1981 after a Sunday dinner when I received a phone call from my brother who asked me if I'd heard the news that Natalie Wood had drowned. I felt like I was punched in the stomach. He told me to turn on the news. I saw it on TV. He just had to wait for details and there were none. I knew better than to call my friend Dennis Deverne, who worked for Natalie Wood and, of course, you know, operated the boat. But if it was a drowning accident, I thought maybe something had happened to the boat, that there was a crash and maybe Dennis was harmed. But I held back. I knew I would get my answers eventually because I am that close with Dennis. Hello, and welcome to Chapter 10 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. I'm your host, Dylan Howard. In this chapter, we'll hear the story of the night Natalie Wood died from three men who were there that night. We will also hear about the explosive new facts published in Dennis Deverne and Marty Rooley's tell-all book, in which Dennis reversed many of the key statements he made to police back in 1981. Dennis's revised account was responsible for getting the case reopened and ultimately led to a reclassification of Natalie's cause of death. Important to note, Dennis's new version of events has since been corroborated by detectives at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. We'll also continue to look at some of the key mistakes made during the original investigation. But first, let's start with the calls between Marty and Dennis that led them to write the book. My first phone call with Dennis, all he told me is that he could not tell me anything. And I I couldn't understand that. There was definitely tremendous sadness in his voice. He was virtually a different person. He was afraid, Dennis was very afraid. And I think he knew until he left California, he better not say anything. He still better stay quiet. Prior to leaving LA for good, Dennis had escaped the virtual house arrest and was no longer living with RJ, but was still taking care of the splendour. And every day he spent on the boat made it harder and harder for Dennis to cope with what he knew to be the truth. After nearly two years, he broke down and could no longer stay silent. In August of 1983 came the phone call where he said there was foul play involved in Natalie Wood's death. I have to talk about it. I can't take it anymore. And I want your help, Marty. And what did Dennis tell Marty? Let's go back to Natalie's last night alive and the aftermath of the dinner she shared on the island with RJ, Walken and Dennis. And as you will hear, Dennis's account from here differs significantly from the official account the police accepted in 1981. Everybody's having a good time and now it's time to go back to the boat and uh, we get back to the boat and I thought, well, I think I'm going to put the kettle on because Natalie likes to have tea, you know, before she goes to bed, you know. So, and I opened a bottle of wine. You know, because we're still going to have some wine. 
It has long been rumoured that there was more than wine being consumed by the group that evening. And now, for the first time, we can reveal the truth. At least according to Dennis Deverne, who provided a sworn statement to the LA County Sheriff's Department in 2011. And in that document obtained by this podcast, he reveals that he gave Natalie, RJ and Christopher Walken quaaludes that night. Some have even suggested that they could have caused her to trip and fall into the water. Here is renowned forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Wecht. Any of the good forensic toxicology labs, they run the uh, blood um, and sometimes uh, bile uh, and or urine, but mostly blood uh, uh, through uh, what we call a general screen. Uh, all of the benzodiazepines, all of the analgesics, the opiates, opioids, uh, all of those, if there were any there, they would have come up, there would have been a blip on the screen, and they would have been identified and quantitated. So uh, the absence of one of those drugs um, in the toxicology report can be taken as meaning that that drug was not in her system uh, when she died. Keep in mind, you know, the drugs get metabolized and they can be in and out of the body in a matter of a couple of days and so on. So that doesn't mean that she was, you know, not, not on it at any time. But, but as far as what was present at the time of her death and uh, whether or not any particular drug would have contributed and so on, um, you can be assured, really, that it would have um, been shown and the fact that it's not there indicates that it wasn't there. The toxicology report aside, there was quite a bit of drinking going on that evening. But from all accounts, everyone was having a good time until out of the blue, RJ took a dark turn. I was standing up in the galley and all of a sudden Robert Wagner gets up, he picks up the bottle of wine, mashes it right in front of Natalie and Christopher and glass flies all over the inside of the salon and the bottle of wine was like still you know like pretty much full and i thought oh my god i i can't believe what's happening and the language do you want to what are you trying to do fuck my wife and you know i mean everything was so out of control in 1981 the explosive detail about rj's behavior and that broken bottle was not disclosed to police Why keep it a secret? Well, perhaps it was because such a detail like this would have completely changed how everyone, including the police, reacted to the tragic events of that weekend. Remember, RJ sought to control the story from the very beginning. But also remember, RJ had apparently suspected that Natalie and Walken were having an affair. And from his own memoir, we know that he doesn't react well to jealousy. Also, Dennis was ever the subservient employee and knew better than to reveal such a damaging piece of information that would clearly have had a domino effect and could blow back on everyone. So now here's this busted bottle of wine with glass all over the place and Natalie's just, I, I, I got to go to my stateroom. And Christopher, he went outside for a minute because he couldn't believe it either. And then when he came back in, he went forward to the boat where his stateroom was. And Natalie went down below to her stateroom. 
I was like, oh my God, I don't know what to do here. So then RJ, he went, he went down into the stateroom there where Natalie was. Well, they started fighting down there. I mean, the fighting was like, it was just unbelievable. I mean, the things being thrown around, um, it was horrible. So I went up onto the bridge. I thought, well, maybe I'll turn on the music because I, I, I didn't want to feel like I was eavesdropping and I could still hear them fighting and fighting and fighting. And I was like, oh my God, I was starting to get scared. And, and I knocked on the door and Robert Wagner opened the door. He says, go away. So I went back up onto the bridge and all of a sudden, you know, the, as the, it was quiet for a while. And I said, you know, I, I better get down there and check. So I went in the stateroom and there wasn't anybody there. Now I opened the door to the back of the boat and there Robert Wagner standing there. And he's just standing there staring at me. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what's going on? He says, Natalie's missing. He says, why don't you go look around the boat to see if you can find her? And I thought, oh boy, this doesn't sound right. Let's pause for a moment to digest these unsettling new details as they raise many questions. One of them is, where was Christopher Walken in all of this? Wouldn't Walken have heard such a loud argument that was taking place between RJ and Natalie. The boat wasn't that big. At the time of the incident, Walken claimed he was in his room asleep and had not heard anything. But since the case was reopened, this podcast can reveal that forensic detectives have conducted a series of noise tests on board the actual Splendor, now moored in Hawaii, in a bid to substantiate Dennis's statements about the argument. The tests proved that both Dennis and Walken would have indeed heard this fight. So why wouldn't they have shared this information with police? So I went up and looked in my stateroom. I said, no, she's not there. I said, well, I'll look in the other guest stateroom, which was not occupied, not there. And I thought, I don't think this could ever happen, but I better check Christopher's stateroom. But of course she wasn't there. And I came back. I said, RJ, I said, she's not here. And he says, she's not? I said, no, she's not She's not here on the boat. I said, I went all over the whole boat and looked for her. I said, where is she? And he says, he says I don't know. You know, and, and I said, well, the dinghy's gone. You know what I'm saying? Well, so she wouldn't take the dinghy. In the six years Dennis worked for the couple, he never saw Natalie tie or untie the dinghy on her own. That was always Dennis's job, but no one shared that fact with the police at the time. This crucial new piece of information may seem circumstantial, but it's not. Had investigators known these particulars back in 1981, there may have been suspicions raised then about whether or not Natalie would have taken the dinghy out on her own, and the case ultimately may not have been so open and shut. And I said, you know what? I said, we we need to call somebody. I said, let's turn on the searchlight to see what, you know, if we can maybe see where, if we see her or something, because she's not here. Obviously, she's not here. She's out She's out there. He says, no. He says, we're not going to do that. I says, well, we have to look for her. He says, we're not going to do that. 
And so we have to call somebody. He said, we're not going to do that right now either. And I'm, let's just have a drink and, and, and think about this. And I'm thinking, the last thing I want to do is have a drink and think about this. You know, there's a woman out there in the, in the freezing cold water. Dennis kept these critical details from police initially because he claims that he was scared of RJ and didn't want to go against his boss. But one must ask, if there was no foul play, then why allow even a moment to go by before calling for help? And why would RJ insist that he and Dennis sit down and open a bottle of scotch and drink instead of doing everything they possibly could to find Natalie? I was thinking, God darn, it was my girlfriend that, that was missing. Why don't I do more? I mean, I, it just didn't really make any sense to me. It was like, come on, hello, what are we doing here? And then as he was pouring me more drinks, I was starting to, you know, drinking scotch. And then I was thinking to myself, this is such such a weird thing to be um, to be involved in right here. And now this person, which wasn't to me Robert Wagner, it was somebody else, is feeding me drinks. And then I'm starting to think about my own life. When RJ was letting all this time go by, I was starting to realize that something wasn't right. And then I also started to get scared because I was thinking, you know, if I was with Natalie the night before, the whole night, I was starting to get scared to thinking that maybe something was going to happen to me. The reason why I didn't call for help on my own is because it, it, it was only he and I standing there face to face with each other and he's telling me in some in 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 words that didn't sound like Robert Wagner. I mean it didn't even look like Robert Wagner. And he says, No, we're not going to do that. It was kinda like <laughs> you don't want to do that, you know, or else it could be a major problem. I mean this guy had control. I mean he had complete control and he he was serious. Eventually, RJ did call for help, and Doug Oden, the acting harbour master that night, went aboard the Splendour during the initial search for Natalie. He questioned RJ about what happened. Doug has rarely spoken about that night until this interview. According to Wagner, she wasn't comfortable on the boats. Uh, she, she would take the helm and run it a little bit during the day if they were out putting around. But uh, she wasn't a boater. She wasn't comfortable with jumping into a boat and taking off and going somewhere in a dinghy to, to visit somebody or go for a joyride. She just wouldn't have done that type of thing normally. Uh, he told me they did have plenty of fuel. They had fueled it at the dock earlier that day, which I happened to see them there when they were fueling it during the day. Uh, she probably could have started it and operated, is what he told me, but he didn't think she would, especially not at night in November. 
He said that they didn't have any other friends on boats nearby that they would have, she would have even considered to go visit. As you will recall from Chapter 9, the official statement from RJ's lawyer the day after her death claimed that Natalie often went out on the boat on her own. Clearly, this is contradictory to what everyone knew of Natalie. She would never leave the boat by herself on a dinghy in the middle of the night, especially while intoxicated, let alone only wearing a parka, flannel nightgown and wool socks. In this past week, we have also just learned a crucial new piece of information regarding the dinghy. Here's Marty Rooley. Well, that night, the um, headlight on the dinghy was broken. They didn't even have a headlight on the dinghy. They, someone held a flashlight as Dennis maneuvered the dinghy. I think RJ held the flashlight so Dennis could see getting back to the Splendor. So, you know, all the talk about Natalie <laughs> taking the dinghy out to go boat to boat or stargazing or whatever. First of all, she never took the dinghy out on her own. Second of all, she certainly wouldn't do it on a dark and dreary night without a headlight on the dinghy. You'd think that the detectives would have known about it. You know, Dennis wasn't asked any questions. If you're a detective, you should have asked all kinds of questions about the dinghy, but they did not. No one asked questions. Another thing to note, later on in the investigation... RJ stated that Natalie must have fallen in the water as she tried to retie the dinghy, as it was keeping her awake by banging against the side of the boat. Well, Natalie would have never done that. She would have, she would have said, "Hey, Dennis, you know, you know, banged on my door. Hey, Dennis, the dinghy's the dinghy's banging against the boat. Can you can you move it?" Which I mean, if that was the case, that's what she really would have done. At this point, the lifeguard captain on duty, Roger Smith, came on the scene. As we heard previously, he was actually there when Natalie was found dead. Part of Roger's duties included keeping a detailed log of events. And now, in a shocking new revelation, we can reveal the actual log from the night in question, and it contains some potentially incendiary new details about what may have been going on. To quote part of the document, it reads, Also known, Chris Walken and Robert Wagner were engaged in sexual activity in cab of boat. Miss Woods found both of them together. Period. It must be noted, however, that this portion in question is in completely different handwriting than the rest of the entry. Now, Roger Smith claims to only have written the top half of the log, which contains time-stamped notes from the initial call and timeline. So, if Roger Smith didn't write it, who did? A source tells his podcast that there was another lifeguard on the scene who may have been the one to add the entry. However, we may never know the truth because we're unable to find the individual in question. But if this document is true, this would not have been the first time Natalie walked in on RJ with another man. As we revealed in Chapter 3, she and RJ divorced the first time around after she walked in on him and the butler in a compromising position. This is just another of the many odd twists that developed during the search for Natalie that has fueled rumours and could have derailed the investigation, not to mention RJ and Walken's careers. Could this have been a motive for murder? 
But then again, based on Dennis's claim that it was RJ who accused Walken of wanting to sleep with Natalie that night, the question remains, who was having an affair with whom? When Robert Wagner and Christopher and Natalie came down to the boat to go away that weekend, I could see Robert Wagner highly jealous of Christopher Walken. And as the whole weekend went on, and the jealousy was building and stuff like that, there was no possible way ever, ever that Christopher Walken and Robert Wagner would have had any connection with each other at all. 100% no. I mean, that's the last thing those two would have done. I mean, he, he was ready to wring that guy's neck. Now, let's go back to the events of that night. By now, Natalie had been found dead and authorities returned to the Splendour to deliver the grim news to RJ. Well, what Robert Wagner did when he found out that his wife was dead, and what I think about to this day is that Robert Wagner is really a very good actor. So there were some tears, and but with the way he could act, it was it was pretty good the way he acted, but I think that's all it was, was acting, even though there was some real tears. And that's when Christopher Walken came out on deck, and they told Christopher Walken that Natalie was gone. He'd put his hand on his forehead and lowered his head and you know, shook his head. He was very visually upset, but he did not say anything. Robert Wagner asked for a few minutes, and that's when he went inside with Dennis and Walken. And I do believe that's when he told everyone, Dennis and Walken, please, it was a pleasant weekend and we don't know what happened. And they all agreed to stick to that story. When Dennis was asked to say nothing after Natalie's death, he went along with it because there, was, there were a lot of factors involved. First of all, there were Natalie's daughters who just lost a mother. Dennis was very close with those girls. They may not remember it, but they called him Uncle Dennis. He babysat them. Dennis was still sorting things out in his own mind, and he didn't want to see those girls immediately also lose a father. But one of the main things is that Dennis was scared to death. As we know, the case was closed quickly. RJ seemingly moved on, as did Christopher Walken. But as Marty has stated, Dennis was haunted by the truth and the fact that he failed to share it. Dennis began to confide in his old friend and share the actual events that transpired that night. After hearing all of the facts from Dennis's point of view, Marty focused on re-examining the events from the night along with the other suspicious circumstances surrounding the case. The first thing she did was put Dennis under the microscope. I had to be ultra objective because of my friendship with Dennis. I hired a criminal polygraphist. His name is Howard Temple. I had everything pertaining to the story account that Dennis gave me into put into questions and Dennis passed polygraph tests. 
From that point on, Marty knew that it would only be up to her and Dennis to get the real story of how Natalie actually died out to the public. And then we said, hey, let's write a book, you know. Let's get the real truth out here. And that's what we did. While Marty researched, conducted interviews and began writing, Dennis was being hounded by the media for interviews, all of which he ignored. But finally, in 1985, Dennis and Marty decided to reveal to the world what they knew about the broken bottle and what led to the heated fight the night Natalie died. Instead of being praised for coming forward with new information, Marty and Dennis were discredited and vilified in the mainstream media. Marty was labelled an obsessed fan, while Dennis was called a drunk. Dwayne Razor, who was the initial detective on the case, started this ridiculous assumption that Dennis is a drunk all the time. Dennis was intoxicated the night that Natalie Wood died. And he stayed up all night. He was a little incoherent by the time the morning hours came and they found Natalie's body. He hadn't slept for 48 hours almost and had been drinking. Dennis is not a drunk, never was. In the year 2000, Vanity Fair wrote an article about Dennis and his side of the story. Although the article was from a credible source, it did little to sway public opinion about Dennis or the case. But it led to RJ admitting in his own memoir that there had indeed been a fight on board and that he had broken a bottle of wine. But even there, he remained economical with the truth. Robert Wagner admitted to the bottle smashing and he said Natalie was there and he argued with Walken over Natalie's career. That wasn't it. He accused Christopher Walken of wanting to have sex with Natalie. So in 1992 was when I first wanted to publish Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor. And we started visiting publishers. And that's when we were sitting, Dennis and I, with our agent in a, pre- a major house in New York City. And they were very interested in publishing this story. And we were in the president's office. And we're sitting there and the phone rang. And the president of the publishing company answered the phone, hung up, looked at us and said, we can't touch this story. Word is out on the street that Robert Wagner will sue anyone who touches this story. And we left the office. And then by 2008, we had found a very good independent publishing company, Phoenix Books, uh, by Michael Veneer, and he was a brave enough publisher to take this on. He said he did not care if he was sued. All the other mainstream publishers were afraid of being sued. Once the book was released, many criticised Marty and Dennis even further. And what was the criticism? That Dennis and Marty got paid to tell their story. When people say that we wrote a book only to make money, I think to myself, you know what? These people don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it wasn't about making money. Yeah, it wasn't about making money. It was, it was about telling the truth. Dennis put a lot into this. He gave up a good part of his life to reveal the truth surrounding Natalie Wood's death, which Natalie Wood deserves. 
And that's, ba- that's Dennis's motive. Natalie Wood deserves the truth attached to her legacy. And that's my motive. And that's it. So a year after Goodbye Natalie was published, I decided um, to do testimonial statements from the people that I had interviewed. In the meantime, an attorney, Vincent DeLuca from Washington, D.C., he had read Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor and started a petition to get the case reopened. So Vincent and I talked and I asked him when he sent the petition if I could accompany the testimonial statements that I had gathered to go to the LASD with the petition. And it was those testimonial statements that finally the LASD could not ignore. They reopened Natalie Wood's case in November of 2011 officially. On the next fatal voyage. She was knocked out before she went in the water. That's how it appears to many medical personnel. Or else she would have urinated upon drowning. I don't know how I can say it more clearly. Fatal Voyage is executive produced and hosted by me, Dylan Howard, and American Media Incorporated. Executive producers also include Kelly Garner and Carolina Saavedra from Treefort. Engineering, mixing, scoring and original music by Tom Monaghan. Additional editing by Josh Workman. Make sure to subscribe to Fatal Voyage on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.